0: Uh, so I was connected with a research project a number of years ago. And the goal was to teach middle school students uh, about physics, specifically about Newton's laws. So one of those famous laws, and you can help me with this, is that things in motion tend to stay in motion. Things at rest tend to stay at rest, right? So, so they wanted to know, are these kids getting it? Uh, are, are they understanding this is the way the world works? So they interviewed uh, this one girl, um, Middle school students saying, okay, you know, as we've been studying this, what happens to things in motion? She said, well, things in motion tend to stay in motion in the classroom. But out in the, in the playground, they tend to slow down and stop. <laughs> and She's exactly right. I mean, there's one kind of answer that makes perfect sense in school, right? Things in motion tend to stay in motion. But in our experience in life, it's really hard to find where there's anything like that. Everything else slows down and stops. And if you want to play kickball or baseball or win anything, soccer, anything with a ball, and if you think that things in motion just keep going in motion, you're going to be a horrible player. You've got to believe that things slow down and stop. Right? So she learned that there's one kind of truth in school. And you say this if you want to get the right answer. There's another kind of truth in real life. And you say this if, if you want to do well in life. So here's my thought. There's one kind of truth on Sunday morning. And if you want to get the right answer, you give that answer. But when you go out and live life, it's not clear how those answers apply. So, for me, one of the examples is Psalm 103, famous song. Bless the Lord, O my soul. All my inmost being, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget not all his benefits. He forgives all our sins and heals all our diseases. Now, I don't have any reason to doubt that God forgives all our sins as we confess them and has faith in him. I, I, I can't see that that doesn't happen. But I'll tell you, I can see the other. I can see that there are diseases that God doesn't heal. So in the past couple of weeks, i spent a little bit of time in a hospital. Not for me, but visiting people. And two different women I visited. Both with very serious illnesses. One is on a great road to recovery. The other died within the week. Both solid Christians. Both we prayed together. Both we, we sought God's work. And I say, so what does that Sunday morning truth of he heals all our diseases have to do with that? I'm not calling it into question, but I'm saying maybe I don't really understand so well what we say when we get together. And we say that's what kind of God we have. That's what he does in the world. In what sense? And I start to wonder, is there one way that I see the truth Sunday morning in a worship service And another way that I see the world the rest of the week, and I try to figure out what do I do with it? We really do live in a world that doesn't seem to behave the way God describes the world ought to behave. So uh, I have a brother-in-law who's very pragmatic about a lot of things. And he says that if you're driving in a car and you you have your Bible up on the dashboard, or you have something on the console in the middle or whatever, and you go around a corner and it falls off onto the floor. He's a firm believer and it's really pretty dumb to pick it up off the floor and put it right back in the same place where it was before (laughs) because the next corner it's going to come down again. He says, let's just leave it on the floor for now and deal with it later. And that's what sometimes I'm tempted to do with this this trouble between Sunday morning truth and life. I don't know how to work this out. Every time I try to apply this over here, it seems to fall off onto the floor. Maybe I'll just leave it there. God will take care of it later. He'll clean up this thing that I don't understand. We live in a world that doesn't run like what God seems to describe it ought to run like. We live in a world run amok. And my question is, what's a good way to live well in that world? How should we do it? We're going to look at the book of Titus this morning. If you want to turn there, uh, grab one of the, the, the pew Bibles, uh, I believe it's on one page, page 167, but you'll have to confirm that yourself. In the New Testament, uh, you're going through a series in Revelation at the end of the New Testament. And you know, the New Testament starts with the four Gospels, the accounts of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. One of those accounts continues on, the book of Acts, and just continues that story. And then we start a big chunk of the New Testament that are letters written by the Apostle Paul. Most of them are written to churches. And we know them by the names of the towns where those churches were. Rome, Corinth, Galatia, Ephesus, and so on. But then we have a couple that are written to individuals who have responsibilities for churches. Uh, we call them the pastoral letters or the pastoral epistles. So you have First and 2 Timothy and Titus. They're written to people who are trying to support a church in a particular place. In this case, it happens to be the island of Crete. Worst, It's not very clear how Paul made the connection with these people. I mean, we know he was shipwrecked there, but it's a challenge to figure out what connection did he really have with these people. But what isn't a challenge is to realize he had a very close relationship with this man, Titus. He really liked Titus, and and he had a close relationship with him, and he's writing to Titus about the churches he has responsibility for. And from the letter, we can quickly discover that Titus lived in an island that had run (laughs) amok, in an island that wasn't a very attractive place to be. Uh, Let me just read some of the description that Paul gives for this. In Titus 1, verse 10, here's what Titus had to work with in building his church. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny him. Being detestable and disobedient, and worthless for any good deed. And then I insert good luck, Titus. <laughs> right, this is what it's like. He he lives in a place. He's trying to build churches in a place where it's clearly run amok, where people are are not following God. They're uh, they're deceived. They're they're going after other things. They're you know these. <laughs> Quite a description. Would you like this to be in Scripture with God's authority and the Apostle Paul saying this is really true that you guys are these, these, what are the words? Always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And he says that's who you're working with and I understand it. Titus, you're trying to work in a world run amok. Go a little bit further. Chapter 3, verse 3. Paul says here's some more words about what these people are like. He says, you were like this at one time. He says, we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Challenging world. Titus lived in a world he's trying to build a church in a world that is full of people who are deceived, who are hateful and being hated. This was a world run amok. And the question is, how in the world Is he supposed to stand up and have courage each morning to say, I'm doing it, I can do this? I think Titus had gotten discouraged. He said, when I look around at the world around me, this is a tough place. As you study through Revelation, you're seeing this this cataclysmic battle, conflict, between the prince of the power of the air and the God of the universe. And there are people aligned with the prince of the power of the air and people aligned with the God of the universe, and there's a great battle and the intensity is growing. Now we know the outcome, but we also know the process. And this is a process of a world that's run amok, a world that's gone astray. And we know what that's like in the world we live in. So if you uh, play a sport, team sport, say soccer, it's pretty critical that you're on the same playbook, right? Or you take football and you've got all these guys running around you, you know, somebody hikes the ball and all of a sudden they're all running. If you alone are playing by the right playbook and everybody else is playing by the wrong playbook, there's not much of a moral victory in that. You get trampled upon. <laughs> Everybody's going the other way. You're trying to go this way. If you're not playing by the same playbook, you're in trouble. I, I play an instrument, some play guitar, and uh, in a worship band every now and then, uh, we get our, our signals crossed and, and somebody's playing the wrong key. Um, And, you know, I've been there before where I figure I'm the only one playing the right key and everybody else is wrong. Well, sometimes that's actually what it feels like in the world. Everybody else is playing by a different playbook. And, you know, if I just stop playing, it seems like it'd go on pretty well. They sound okay as long as they're all wrong the same way. It's when I come and try to play the right thing, all of a sudden it doesn't seem to work right. See, I, I do find myself living in a world where it seems that what I'm trying to do sometimes... It would just be nicer for everybody if I'd back away and go somewhere else. This world doesn't play by those Sunday morning rules, and when I try to, it just makes it worse. I think I might back out of it. That's the temptation. But it's worse than that. See, the Bible doesn't give us the freedom to point out the window and say, there's where the problem is. It's those people I have to work with. Right? Doesn't give us that freedom just let me read a little bit from Romans 7 that Paul describes where else the problem is. He says, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, the Sunday morning truth, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death. See, Paul said, you live in a world run amok, and you're part of it. <laughs> you're a problem too. I realize that uh, there aren't many people who, who disagree with patience in the abstract. Right? We all agree patience is a really good thing, and yeah, I want to be patient. Um, it's When you're around somebody that's not behaving the way you think they ought to behave and you've tried to tell them and they're not responding and you can't get anywhere, that's when it's hard to be patient. Patient in the abstract is a great thing. I'm all for it. Patience in the concrete situation where it's needed, I find hard. So Sunday morning I can say, well, of course, this week I'm going to be more patient. And it may be before I get home. I discovered it was a lot easier to say that in that setting than to do it in life. I find a different work in my life. There's this disconnect between what happens in some settings, like Sunday morning worship, and the rest of life. And I think Titus felt it deeply. He said, Paul, I'm not sure I can keep this up. So Paul writes to Titus. We're just going to look at the first four verses. It's not much, but a fascinating thing about this book is that while it's one of the shortest letters, it has one of the longest greetings, <laughs> Paul said, I'm going to put a lot into this. Every word's significant. So Titus 1, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child, in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. Let's just walk through this. Paul's packed so much into it. He begins by saying, I am Paul, a slave of God, a bondservant, a servant of God. He says, I'm owned by somebody. Now, some people in more liberal ways of reading the Bible say, well, this Paul guy decided we ought to establish something new, and we'll call it Christianity. And I'll write the theology for it, and and I'll set it up, right? As if Paul were the one who instigated this. Paul, in his own words, says, no, I'm the slave of God. I do exactly what he says, and a slave doesn't have a choice. A slave doesn't say, oh, that doesn't seem like a good idea here. I think we ought to do it this way instead. Paul says, I'm a slave under God. I do what he says. And all true Christians are that. We are slaves of righteousness. We are slaves of God. We do what God says, even when it doesn't seem like what I would like to do right now. That's what we're called to do. Paul says, that's who I am. I'm a slave of God. And then he says, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. An apostle is somebody who sent out an emissary, uh, an ambassador, perhaps. But that's not all that Paul means here. Paul means he was an apostle in the strict sense of the word that says, God has authorized him to speak his word. God has said, when you speak, it's my truth. And Paul, in the beginning of his letter, says, guess what, what I'm saying now is God's word. We don't share that with him. Titus didn't share that with him. He had this in a unique way. And yet now we have his word. But Paul says, I'm a servant of God. The specific way that I express it is being an apostle, somebody who can speak for Jesus Christ by his authority. And he says that I am this for the faith of those God has chosen. Paul says that my service to God, my apostolic ministry, is for the faith, to, to promote, to encourage, to strengthen the faith of God's elect. He says, my goal is that you, Titus, first of all, but then other people would be strengthened in their confidence in God. That, that they would say, I know I can walk in this way because God is true. God is good. Paul says, I'm here to build up the faith. Of God's people now one of the classic challenges in understanding salvation is what's man's part and what's God's part right classic problem that leads to division of denominations so here I go no I'm kidding um (laughs) he says God has chosen his people right you see that I'm here for the faith of the ones God has chosen I love the Greek word because it's the word we get eclectic from. Christians really are an eclectic group of people. In some ways, it seems like God is kind of arbitrary, the kinds of people that he chooses. Nothing against you all, but I mean, that's... God picks people. He didn't pick the rich or the poor, this national... He picks people, and it's an eclectic group. We're told that God predestined us before the creation of the world. And so some people lash out and say, see, God does it. And then the other side, people say, yeah, but we've got responsibility. We have to respond in faith. God doesn't act contrary to our will. And so God's invited everybody, and now it's our job to respond, right? So the classic problem. What I love is Paul holds on to both. He says, here's what I'm doing. I'm for the faith of the ones God chose. I'm going for both of them. He says, I want to build up the faith of God's people, the very ones that he chose. Paul says, that's what I'm all about. My life as a servant of God, as an apostle, is to build up the faith of the ones God chose, that they would walk in confidence in him. He says, I do it for the sake of the knowledge of the truth. Uh, This is a, a, a phrase that Paul often uses just to describe this idea of conversion, to come to know the truth. You'll know the truth and it'll set you free. It's not merely intellectual knowledge of propositions of truth. But it's not less than that, either. You can't be a Christian without the knowledge of the truth. But it's not enough to have an intellectual knowledge. We both need to know it and acknowledge it. And Paul says, that's what I'm here for. I want God's people to know the truth, to know it in life as well as intellectually. He says, that's what I'm here for. I want to promote the faith of God's elect, the ones He's chosen, and their knowledge of the truth, he says, which accords with godliness, which is consistent with godliness, that leads to godliness. And this is one of, the, one of the heresies, is that we can somehow divide faith and works. Another classic problem. Paul says you can't split them. True faith results in works. In fact, he says to Titus about Crete, there are a number of people who claim faith and deny it with their life. You can't have one or the other, he says. You've got to have both. Paul says, I'm apostle for the, for the faith of God's chosen, for the knowledge of the truth that leads into godliness. Then verse 2, in the hope of eternal life, raises a wonderful question. What's in the hope of eternal life? Right? Paul, if I were an English teacher, I'd say, Paul, you now have set up at least three different things. Your own service to God and apostleship and faith and knowledge. Which of these things is in the hope of eternal life? So if you have an NIV, it's fascinating that they decided to tell you. So in verse 2, the NIV says, a faith and knowledge that leads to godliness, or that it's in the hope of eternal life, a faith and knowledge. So they decide to put into the text the very definition of what they think that means. It's not there in the Greek. The Greek's ambiguous. They said, we want to say that. If you look at the, the message, the message says it's actually Paul's apostleship, that's in the hope of eternal life. I think there's a lot of reason to think that's true, but the text itself doesn't say. The best I know to do is to say this whole ball of wax over here rests on the hope of eternal life. Paul's apostleship, people's faith, and the knowledge of the truth all rest upon the hope of eternal life. So what's eternal life? The simple definition is faith that or life that doesn't end. That's actually not a very good thing on its own. There are a lot of people whose lives have ended. We should be very thankful for that. (laughs) You can imagine some of the rulers in the past, if their lives had continued and they continued to have power and and have the technology we have today, this would be an awful place. We don't know how bad it could be. In some ways, God is merciful in saying, your life now is going to be shorter than I once thought it would. When God says, I have for you eternal life, it's not just a life that doesn't end, although it is that. It's also a life that begins to share in the qualities of God. It's a holy life. It's a life of joy. It's a life of obedience. It's a life of love. When the Bible talks about an eternal life, it's not just talking about you don't die in a spiritual sense. It's not just saying, although it is saying that, it's also saying that you'll take on the very qualities of God. And Paul says, this whole thing over here Looks at that and says, so That's what it's all about. The apostleship of Paul, the faith of God's chosen people, the knowledge of the truth, all rests upon this hope of a life that won't end in ever increasing goodness. That's what it's all leading to. How do we know about it? Paul says, In the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, Paul says, God cannot lie. What he says is true. It happens. It's going to be. That's the way it is. God cannot lie. And the New American Standard puts it in an interesting way. Long ages ago. One of my recommendations is, don't just stick with one translation. Look at different ones, because there are hard things to translate. Almost every other translation here says before time began. The most literal way that I know to say it in Greek is before time eternal. So yeah, it is a long time ago, but I think the suggestion is it's even before time. This isn't just going back to God's promise to to Adam, I'm going to fix this place. I believe it's before time began, God said, here's my plan. I'm going to have a people that lives with me forever in wonderful paradise. That's my plan, and I promised it before it all began. And then the question is, to whom did he promise this? I mean, who was there to listen to it? You know, if I promised something, nobody was there to hear me say it, am I really obliged to keep it? <laughs> Sometimes my way of thinking of it. Boy, I'm glad nobody heard me say that, right? So now I'm off the hook. That's not true with God. God doesn't lie. He can't lie. When he says it's going to happen, he says, my determined will from before the time all of this began is that I'm going to have a people of my own who live with me forever in paradise. That's the hope that we have. The hope of eternal life that's based on something outside of time, that God said, I'm gonna do it. And then what does God say? He says, which he revealed, verse three, at the proper time, he manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted. At the proper time. So we've got before time is a promise, after time is eternal life, but in time, God manifested it. He made it real. The clearest fulfillment of this is Jesus Christ. He didn't come to tell us about God's promise. He came to be God's promise. Right? He manifested the promise of God. He manifested the righteous, righteous nature and grace of our God in his life, in flesh and blood. He was the promise of God. But not only that, Paul says he manifested it, and I love the way the New American Standard puts it, even in his word, in the proclamation, in the gospel, in the truth, God manifests that promise about an eternal future. I think he's saying that God's word, when it's proclaimed, is powerful. In the proclamation of his word, it is enacting his word, right there. That's why proclamation is so significant. We ought to anticipate that God's going to do a work when his word is proclaimed. And he says this was entrusted to me. Here Paul says what nobody else other than the other apostles can say. God entrusted to me, and he makes this emphatic, to me, myself, actually, I'm talking about me here, not you, Titus, not anybody else. God has uniquely entrusted to me this proclamation, this word, this message, so that he could say, I, as an apostle of God, write this down for you. God said, make sure people know this. Write it in letters. What a great thing that we have these letters. Right? What in one way was a problem to them in their day, I wish Paul says, I could be with you. But I'm thankful he wasn't. <laughs> because we have the word which God entrusted to Paul. And it was according to the commandment of God, our Savior, he says. God commanded Paul, write this down, people have got to know it. Build up my people with this word. It's fascinating, says, God, our Savior. I'm used to, in, a, in, in kind of my Christian way of thinking, of God as a father, Jesus as a savior, and the Holy Spirit is at work in my life. Hard to make that distinction. Um, this is a very clear expression of the Old Testament idea of God is my salvation. See that all over the Old Testament. God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. Well, here he is God, our savior. Same thing. One way people have expressed that that's helped me is that salvation is from God the Father, through Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit the Trinity is actively at work in salvation. It's not like Jesus has to protect me from the wrath of the Father. And if we just get rid of the Father, we'd be okay and we wouldn't need Jesus as much, right? It's not that at all. There is this integrated unity of the will of God that wants my salvation and promised it before time began. This is the message that was entrusted to Paul by God our Savior. He says, to Titus, my true child in a common faith. One of the things we know about Titus from the book of Galatians is that he was Greek. And a part of his Greek heritage is he wasn't circumcised. Part of what we know about the conflict in Crete is that there were Judaizers there. People who said the only way you can really be a complete Christian if you start out as as Greek or Gentile is you have to become a Jew and then you can become a Christian. You can't bypass that Jewish part. You have to do that and part of that is circumcision. So you can hear the conflict. There are leaders in the churches in Crete saying, Titus, you're not qualified to be our leader. You can't be doing this because you haven't become a Jew first. You are illegitimate in your ministry here. So what does Paul, the apostle, say? Goes over, puts his arm around Titus and said, you're my true son. You're the one who has the stamp of the apostle of God upon you. God has chosen you and put you here and you're the one with authority even though you've got people questioning that authority all over the place. Paul puts a stamp of approval approval on Titus. You're my true child, my true son. He says in a common faith it's not just a relationship. Titus does have to adhere to the truth and these others don't. So Paul puts this great endorsement on Titus saying you're my true child of this common faith that we hold and then he says grace And peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. It is His blessing with the authority of an apostle. He says, Grace and peace to you. And it's interesting, isn't it? Isn't it that here Jesus Christ is Savior? One fascinating thing is most of the time when Paul writes a blessing like this at the beginning of a letter, it's Christ Jesus our Lord. Here he says, Christ Jesus our Savior. Again, I think we try to make a distinction that doesn't make much sense. We say, well, Jesus is our Savior and at a later point in life I decided he'd be my Lord too. I don't think you can split those out. I mean, he is our Savior it doesn't mean that he just rescued me from the wrath of God. It means that he is doing a good work in causing me to grow. So even just a chapter 2, verse 11, he says, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men instructing us to deny ungodliness, to grow ungodliness. The grace of God of Jesus Christ our Savior, both saves us and teaches us how to live. So, what is Paul saying to Titus? What's his message to this leader of churches who's struggling in a world run amuck? And he says, Paul, you don't realize the kind of people I have to work with here. What does Paul say? He says, Titus, you can walk and obey in confidence because the God who cannot lie promised before time began that you'd be with him for eternity in paradise and he's revealed it in his word today you can obey him boldly today in confidence even though there are people opposed to you even though they're lazy evil gluttons you can obey confidently today because the god who cannot lie promised us that you would be with him forever and he's revealed it in time today so i love uh flying in airplanes and uh I don't know if you saw the news that this work with the solar impulse, this plane that, that goes just by the power of the sun. And people have done this before. So it's in one way not that big a news. You can get an airplane to fly just by the solar panels and, and you know the sun helps you fly. Well, there's one problem is what do you do when the sun sets, <laughs> right? This is a problem if you're solar powered. And so the amazing thing about the solar impulse is that they were able to fly through the night. They had sufficient batteries And batteries are notoriously heavy, but they had sufficient batteries so that they're charged up during the day, they were able to fly all through the night and get to the morning where the batteries started to charge again. So at least in theory, they could fly continuously, right, just by the power of the sun. So here's what I experience. Sometimes it feels like times of worship, times in the church and fellowship, that's like being a solar-powered plane and I've got the sun shining on my wings, And then I leave that group, and I encounter somebody who pushes my patience. And all of a sudden, my batteries are starting to look pretty dry. And boy, I hope my batteries don't wear out before that sun shines again, right? I I need that again. And I feel like I get caught in between. Well, the real challenge for the Christian church is it's not week to week. When Jesus Christ ascended into heaven, in some profound sense, it became night. Right? It became a time when we're living in enemy territory. And as you're studying Revelation, there will be a time when he comes back and it'll be light again. The sun will shine again. And we live in this big area in between. And sometimes I wonder, are my batteries going to make it? Right? Is my faith going to be sufficient to get me that far? Maybe there'll be something that can pump me up again and charge those batteries so I can keep on going. And I wonder, am I going to make it? Always impressed by... Uh, the, the gymnasts, the, the men who can, you know, incredibly strong, and like one of the things they do with the flying rings is that iron cross. You know, they hold their hands out there and try to be steady and try to smile and look relaxed, you know. <laughs> I couldn't hold on long enough not to look relaxed. I mean, it's just, it, it takes so much strength. But that's what I sometimes feel like. I feel like to be a Christian in the world... I've got to hold on to these two things that are disconnected from each other and I'm dying in the middle and you tell me I'm supposed to look like I'm happy so other people want to be Christians too. <laughs> and I say, I'm struggling. I'm not sure I have the strength. Now, I have some friends as Christians who have much more confidence in their own faith that it'll continue. I don't know about that for me. I mean, I, and not that I, I'm, I feel like I'm wavering in belief now, but when I see some of the things that people have encountered in life, I wonder... Would my faith hold up through that? Or would my batteries run dry? Would I not be able to hold that iron cross and eventually I just let my hands go? I can't make it. I think perhaps Titus felt that way. Maybe you do sometimes too. What does Paul say? Well, first of all, he says to have faith. Have faith in God. He says, be around the proclamation of God's word. Right. The, the manifestation of God's work is through his word through his word, read and proclaimed. So be bold in hanging on to it. Be bold in pursuing it. But even that's not enough, I don't think. Here's what I think Paul said to Titus. When you feel like your batteries have run dry, when you feel like you'd like to be a pastor in any place but here, if you feel like you know, you'd like to work in any place but with these people, or you feel so down about yourself, says, here's what you need to do. Go back before time. There's a God who cannot lie, who promised that you'd be with him for eternity as you put your faith in him. So what I realize, I often feel like I'm that solar plane in the dark. And I'm thinking, is my faith going to make it? What I need to realize is that when I'm going through the dark and my faith is wavering, the hand of God is right underneath my plane. My hope isn't that I'm going to hold on, but that God will. I put my faith in the hand of God who will not let me down. Why? Because the God who cannot lie promised before time began that I would be with him for eternity. And he revealed it in his word today. God chooses us as we hear his word proclaimed and our hearts say, yes, I now understand and I'll submit to this. Not because I can hang in there but because he can be trusted. He can't lie. What he says is as good as done. And he says, my chosen ones will be with me forever, and there's nothing in time that can break that down. I don't know where you are today. I don't know if there's something in your life, you say, you know, there's a significant disconnect between either my behavior or, or my heart between Sunday morning and the rest of the time if you feel discouraged, or I don't know where you are. Put your hope in the hand of God, the God who cannot lie. I think this is what Paul is saying to Titus. Titus, I know you're up against it, but your hope is not that you can do it right. Your hope is not that you have enough faith. Your hope is that your faith is in the God who cannot lie, who promised you'd be with him forever in glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that we don't have to have enough faith. We don't have to be good enough. We don't have to have enough perseverance. Forgive us, Father. Forgive me for putting my hope in my continued faith. I know it won't last. Father, help me to put my hope in you. In your hand that is always there. In you is the God who cannot lie. And you promise. I'll be with you forever. Father, for each one here today, in each heart, Father, do your work. For those who have not yet put their hope in you. Who have not come to this rich, deep knowledge of the truth of your son, what you've done. Father, draw them to yourself. And Father, I pray that for all of us, we would walk in confidence in you, in your word. Thank you, Father, for teaching us, for encouraging us today. Father, help us to walk in boldness, in confidence in you because of your promise that will be with you forever. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, may this amazing grace strengthen, encourage you, and be with you this week. May you go in his peace.